0: If you are a clinical lead or a practice manager and your primary care network to-do list is growing by the minute and you could do with an extra pair of hands to deliver some of your projects and network-based services, I would absolutely love to help you. So come and check us out at www.thcprimarycare.co.uk. Now let's jump into this week's episode. So hi, Wayne. Thank you so much for joining me on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing?
1: I'm well, Tara. Thanks for inviting me.
0: My pleasure. My pleasure. So a lot of people may know who this mysterious marketing Pete is. What's Pete's last name?
1: Pete Bouvier, if I've pronounced it right.
0: <laughs> so Pete is a marketing extraordinaire working in the field of health. He works with lots of healthcare entrepreneurs and he keeps saying to me, Tara, you need to speak to this person. You really need to get him on the podcast. And you were, you were on the list.
1: He's a great connector. I've known Pete for many years. We've worked uh, together in the NHS. So yeah, he's, he's fantastic.
0: So could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do and who you work for?
1: Yeah. So I'm the chief executive of LUTO and we're based in Leeds in West Yorkshire. We're a health communication company. We also test information. So we write all sorts of information for patients to use or healthcare professionals. And then we apply research to test that people can use those materials effectively.
0: Okay. And how did you get started in that?
1: So, really interesting story. LUTO started back in 2004 as a spin-out from Leeds University at a time when the European legislation was changing for package leaflets. Before that, you could write a leaflet and put it in front of a patient you know, on the shelf and it had never been seen by a patient before that. So, it could be gobbledygook. And the European uh, Union said, you've got to start testing those leaflets with your patients. So pharmaceutical companies are required to test those leaflets. So a group of academics from Leeds University uh, started and formed the company back in 2004.
0: So as an example, I think you said to me when we first spoke, if you take a box of paracetamol, you get the like the ingredients, instructions, all the symptoms in there. Do you? So you make those or you you check them to make sure the information is correct in the right format.
1: That's right yes so there is a format a template they have to follow and we help companies produce those so we can either write them from scratch or a lot of companies send us a draft and we'll edit that down into the format and make sure that it's using clear language so that as many people can understand it as possible and then we go on to test those leaflets with the intended audience so we'll recruit people from the general population in the local area and we will conduct what we call readability study to test can they find and understand the information in the leaflet as you say can they find how to use the medicine safely and store it and know what to do if they have any side effects
0: do you ever get any feedback on the size of the text uh,
1: quite frequently <laughs> yes it can be it can be quite uh, lengthy the leaflets and especially if it's multilingual so you know it, medicines that are marketed in Europe Uh, will have several languages sometimes and we'll test that as well with patients uh, to see if they can find the English to start with and then you know um, the information that we're requiring and sometimes the, the, the font size can be quite small on those to fit it on a leaflet you know you think the paper's quite thin and it has to fit in a box.
0: It does and how do you win your clients and do and how long do they stay with you for?
1: Really interesting question. We're very fortunate. We've got some lovely clients and uh, we get a lot of repeat business. So over the years, we've worked with many clients and they come back time and time again for either user testing or new services that we're offering. So we're always increasing the services that we can offer and talking to those clients about that. But we're very fortunate. We don't do very much marketing ourselves. We obviously are active on social media and try to keep a present. We're kept busy by the repeat business of our clients. And that's down to the team, you know, really having a great team around you that do a good job. And we send customer satisfaction surveys out to every customer. So we monitor as part of our quality system how we're doing.
0: And what is in your survey? What are you asking your clients?
1: Essentially, we're checking that we have done the job that they've asked us to do. So at the beginning of a project, we'll ask the client to fill in an inquiry form, and we'll have an initial discussion, and we'll get the brief from the client. And at the end, we're asking them, you know, did we did we fit the delivered the brief really? So how did we communicate with you? Did we communicate on time? Did we communicate enough? Uh, things like, would you recommend Luto to other other people? Pretty standard things you see in a customer satisfaction survey, but most importantly, we've, we've got an ISO 9001 quality system which looks at our processes. So we're continually trying to improve how we deliver projects and we look at that feedback. So each each time we get a, a survey back, it does it comes past my desk literally. So I read most of them that come, come through, if not all of them. We get summaries um, during the month from the team. So it's really important to see that we're doing a good job. And our score is continually high and it's the team beat themselves up sometimes if someone scores you down just slightly, you know. And we'll, we'll go back and say, you know, how could we improve on that?
0: OK, cool. Is it a competitive market? It's,
1: it is, I suppose, but it's Luto's quite a unique company. There's lots of people, freelancers maybe, and other companies that will do user testing and then other things. But we're quite unique in the fact that we create communications and we test them. And we also work on instructions to using medical devices and clinical trial information. So we've got quite a breadth of work that we do around patient communications. We work with uh, a global team of academics who are on our, our advisory board to help us bespoke surveys and studies for, for our clients. So we're quite unique. You, if you look around, you know it's hard to find another company that's similar to these patients. People do some of our work. But then there may be, it might be an engineering company that make a device, but they'll then do the IFU, maybe create the IFU. Um, they won't do the testing perhaps.
0: Okay. And in regards to, so the business has been going a really long time and you've got your clients, but do you ever think about, and I know that you, you love a business book and listen to podcasts and things about how you, how would you disrupt yourself? How will you keep front and mind? So I understand that COVID at it's obviously had an impact on your business, but not had an impact on your clients, but there could be something else. What is in the back of your mind? Are you thinking, how could we disrupt ourselves? So we still stay, you know, like number
1: one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, innovation is really important to me to keep the business fresh and, making sure we're delivering the right products and services for our clients. If I dare mention the Brexit word, before COVID hit, you know we were looking at Brexit and the effects on, on our business. And we think we're, we're, we've got a plan, but it's not going to affect us hopefully too much. We'll still be able to continue doing work for the European Union from the UK. But that made us look at the user testing part of our business, which is a large part of our business, that was maybe switched off overnight, what else would we do? So we're always looking at new things that we can add to to Luto's portfolio, if you like. And one of the things we did a couple of years ago, we actually moved from the university to our own premises, which allowed us to think about expansion. It's so easy to get comfortable, isn't it, in your surroundings and and be happy and contented. And, you know, to work on a great campus like Leeds University was fantastic. But actually moving away from the university we've actually increased our collaboration with the university it's made us work a bit harder for it and we've got more collaborations more staff coming from the university as graduates now than we did before that's been a really positive thing to actually move it was very disruptive the business of people think about how they commute to a new location it was too far away but it had to be looked into you know to see if we could actually find somewhere that was suitable for Staff and, and uh, the people that come to take part in our studies. Mm-hmm. And also with COVID, you mentioned it has been disruptive for everybody, obviously, but fortunately, you know, the work didn't stop for us. We still had to meet our deadlines. The team pulled together to actually, within two weeks, hither to change the way that we operate. So traditionally, we'll invite members of the public into our facility to be interviewed for study. Obviously, we couldn't do that any any longer, so we had to look at a remote option, change all our methodology, ensure that it was tested and fit for purpose, talk to all our clients about what we were going to do, whether that's acceptable, talk to the regulators, and that's where it makes me really proud to have a team that can rally around and, and achieve something like that so quickly and, and make us uh, continue as a business. You know, a lot of people weren't able to continue so I do think we we're fortunate from, from that point of view and obviously it was disruptive for staff you know with their working patterns if they had children everybody was thinking about life very differently and for me it's really important to take the positives out of that bad experience you know a lot of people have been very unfortunate in their business and families etc but um, I think I've heard a lot of people say it's cut red tape you know because you you think about things and don't do it, but it's actually made a lot of people do things like remote working and say, actually, it works. So it's allowed us to test different ways of working, and I really want to continue that where possible and take the positives of the different way of working. And you know, even for our uh, participants that take part in studies, it's much more convenient for them to be interviewed in their own home. They're much more relaxed. They haven't got to travel to our facility and they all enjoy it you know we're actually interviewing over the telephone now and we send materials out through the post and the feedback we get is is really positive you know people still want to take part so we'd still like to try and keep some of that going if we can as yeah. well
0: who decides whether you're the chief exec who decides whether you can or you you don't
1: we work in a very heavily regulated environment so Whilst we uh, will provide options and solutions to our clients, we have to work with the regulators and make sure that if we're going to suggest uh, a methodology, that's likely to be approved and accepted. So that's why it was very important for us to have the discussions with the regulators to make sure that we could work within their rules, if you like. Mm. And they actually proposed that telephone or video interviews would be acceptable in this, this period of time. So. I think now that we've been running it for several months, we can actually go back and say it's working. And actually, can we yeah. change this and make it a little bit different and, and flex it a little bit so it, it is more convenient for participants, which is what, why we're doing this, really.
0: And how many people do you use a test with? Do you need a minimum Lots. amount or do you um, need a minimum
1: we we You do so it depends what type of um so if you were writing a maybe if you were a nurse and you 're writing an information leaflet for a patient, people talk about testing with five people as an ideal number because the theory goes that really after five people you 're going to find most of the problems in that material you 're just going to start repeating you know the errors, finding where they are, so five is a good number if you write something anything even if you 're in business and you want to just get five of your friends to look at a, okay. you know, a, an article you've written, it's a really good way of getting some friendly feedback and some honest feedback. But for the regulated work that we do, there are minimum numbers. So for a user test on a package leaflet, we have to run a pilot, and typically we'll do two or three people um, in that pilot to actually see the questionnaire and the materials are working before we go into the test. And then we'll do two rounds of 10, uh, so 20 people in total for the user test. And there's certain criteria around finding and understanding. So 80% of the, of the people must be able to find and understand the information. 90%, sorry, the people must be able to find and understand the information. And that's quite complicated. If you know, For our business, we were set up to do that. But if you were a nurse looking at information in your practice, maybe, then you know five is a good number you could do more and you could do user testing in a variety of ways you know we we do it as a one-to-one interview you could have a little focus group with you know invite a few different uh, people different ages different demographics people that take the medicine people that don't carers and just ask to review the leaflet and have a discussion around it and some people like focus groups because it, it helps the quieter people maybe sort of contribute you do have to manage it but some people for one-to-one one interviews because then you don't get bias from other people. Or a lot of people, I'm on a reader panel for my local hospital and they'll send a leaflet to me in the post to just say, could you understand it? Were there any difficult words? Um, and I probably give them a little bit too much feedback because of my, my role, but uh, <laughs> I, I try to sort of feedback uh, to them. So, you know, they do it in a very different way as well. Then when we look at American market, uh, the American market for us is very different again. The FDA look at rounds of 15 people. So they've decided that that's the the optimal number for, for their studies and that's looking at usability testing so for devices or apps for health etc.
0: How many countries do you work in?
1: So we cover Europe and America at the moment we have a, an office in Chicago for any studies that we do for the American market have to be done on American soil so we have a an office in Chicago, and we work very closely with an academic at Northwestern University who's our advisory board. And then Europe, we cover all, all countries in Europe, really. So most of the studies that we do are in English. So a leaflet that is for all European countries, you can test it in English, and then it, it goes through a process of what we call faithful translation. So a professional translation house will then take that material and translate it into the different languages.
0: Are you the CEO for the whole group and like the international offices?
1: For Luto, yes. Yeah, we're part of a larger group, but for Luto, I'm the, the chief exec, yeah.
0: That's amazing. Like I think when we first spoke, <laughs> I thought you, not that, that not just, but I thought it was just leads.
1: A lot of people, yes, yeah. And, and um, I often sort of pinch myself and say, you know, little old Luto, look at what we're doing because uh, we have a global reach. And that sort of goes back to your previous question about how unique I suppose, our organisation is. It's a very specialised field we, we work in and there aren't many people doing the work that we do. Yeah, over the years, you know, we've been running, we've, we've diversified and, you know, the American market is very important to us and a lot of our American clients obviously have products in Europe, so they'll come to us to help them move with that side of things as well.
0: So how many staff does Luto employ?
1: So we've got approximately 15 staff. We, we employ quite a few part-time staff as well in here in the UK. And then we work with uh, a network of consultants. So our staff in America are consultants to LUTO and also um, some freelancers in the UK that we've worked with for many years. And um, they, they're real specialists in their area that they work on, whether it's a, a writer or a moderator for a study. Um, they're all part of part of our extended team.
0: So, I didn't ask you this in preparation for the interview, but I did think could you give us some like principles that we should follow when creating patient information or general communications to our staff and colleagues and stakeholders that you would advise?
1: I'm really glad you've asked that question, Tara, because um, it's, a, it's a passion of ours here at LUTO. So, I think one of the, the things that we see when people write information. I suppose it you fall back to your professional, whether you're a nurse, an architect, or whatever it might be. So you'll write in your professional voice. You won't write like you talk to people. So a nurse or doctor will talk very differently to how they write. And we always say, read back your information out loud, and you'll find you'll find problems in it, or, you know, that you your easy spot when you read something back to yourself. There are certain things if you're writing um, a document to help a user navigate through that document. I go around, I'm quite sad like this, I go around collecting posters and pictures of bad information. You know, it's, uh, it's kind of like a train spotter, but for information. <laughs> um, but I see so many posters, and it's almost like every function in word has been thrown at that poster. So it's in capitals, it's in bold, it's underlined. It's probably in comic sans, you know, that you can't really read. And people read up and lowercase letters the shape of a letter. So you can reverse a letter, a word back to front, and people will still be able to read it because they used to read it the shape of the letter. You look at the start and end letters. So when you're writing capitals, you get blocks. And for people with literacy issues, it's really hard for them to, to read information. So that's probably like the number one thing. If you're writing a poster when you're listening to this podcast, use upper and lower case. Don't use capitals to for headings and things. You can use bold. We find that if you underline text, it also creates a pattern on the word. So it detracts from the upper and lower case pattern or shape. So underlining isn't good for information. So I well. reckon
0: there'll be some people that were, lis- they were listening to this podcast and they weren't really listening. And then when you just said about bold, they were all like, oh, <laughs> they stop what they are doing. They're like, oh, all my posters are in capitals, underlined, and bold. <laughs>
1: I've done it. You know, before I got into health information, it's the classic because you think I'm going to make this stand out. Stand but out. actually, you're you're making it inaccessible for a lot of people and difficult to read.
0: Talk to me about pictures.
1: Pictures are really interesting because you could ask 10 people about a, a picture and they'll, they'll have different ideas of what you're trying to relate to them. So pictures on their own aren't great because especially in health information, you're trying to relay some important information pictures can help navigate but they've got to be linked to the information so if you if you were talking about diabetes and you had a picture of a beach you know what are you saying to somebody that you're trying to improve their lifestyle or you know um, is it just a nice picture to break up space so the pictures should match the text really and i would encourage people not to use clip art and those sorts of things because it's it's not great for people to understand sometimes you can use a little sort of picture to as I say help um, navigate an information so you might put a symbol of a telephone but even if you ask somebody you know if somebody's only used to using a mobile phone and you know the old traditional phones that you had a dial on you know that's a typical picture of a phone isn't it younger people wouldn't know what that is. They'd be like, what does that symbol mean? <laughs> so, you know, you can actually alienate your audience by including some pictures. You've got to be really, really careful. But it goes back to testing again. You know, if you're going to do that, ask five people and say, what does this mean to you? And they'll soon tell you if they understand it or not.
0: How do you source those five people? So you could ask five people in your organ. So if you, I went in the field of primary care, asking you know, what five people do I want to ask? Because if you're all part of the project, you know, if you ask your project team and you say, what does this mean? You will get people saying, I'm not quite sure, but they've all been, you know, like, you know, that they've all been part of the process. What did you do to make sure you're really getting the best feedback from like somebody that is completely blind to it?
1: So if, for example, you were an entrepreneur and you're writing a business case, maybe, and you want to check that that's going to be understandable, ask five of your friends. You know, they won't be so close to your business. You may have t- spoken to them about the idea, but they won't have been so close to the project like you, your example. If you're maybe a GP or a nurse working in a, a healthcare setting, there's lots of ways you see patients every day. So you could always ask them if they would mind taking a look at your leaflet or old poster.
0: Do you have to do it in, because where you talk about, I know from like a general organization's point of view, they don't, I'm assuming they don't have to worry. Could you just ask a patient or could you look at my leaflet or do they have to do it in a certain proper way so they're not breaching any standards or just doing anything wrong?
1: Well, the key, key word is consent. So you'd ask their permission if, if to take part. And, and generally, if you were probably working um, in a, a practice, you'd, you'd want somebody to volunteer their time. And there's lots of people. We, we find a lot of people take part in our studies because they feel that they're making a difference. So they like the idea that they're helping other people. If they improve the leaflet through the testing, it's going to help somebody else. So you might get some people that don't want to, but I think a lot of people would um, volunteer. Probably give them the option to think about it, you know, so maybe contact them a day after and say, we spoke about this leaflet, can I send it to you? It's a lot easier maybe for a nurse within the practice because that information is obviously confidential. As as a private company, we can't use the NHS to recruit. So we have to use support groups. So you could go to the local mums and toddler group and just talk about what you're doing. You know, they'll be really interested in health improvements in their area and ask people to sign up. We actually, as part of our studies, we pay people. So that covers their, their time and travel expenses for getting to, to us. But if you can't, if you haven't got a budget to pay people, ask for volunteers and uh, you, will, you will find people that really want to uh, take part. If you're an NHS trust, for example, you're, if you're foundation trust, your membership, that's how I get leaflets, because I signed up as part of being a member to the trust. So ask for volunteers and be careful how you keep their, their records. You don't want to breach GDPR. Yeah. So be careful there.
0: Do you attract diversity when you go out from a LUTO perspective? Are you getting the same sort of people that do it all the time? Are they fully representative of all people that are going to be buying that particular product?
1: We actually try to limit the, the number of people that return to take part. They actually we, we did a study and found that maybe because they relax more into taking part they, people think they'll get better they learn the, the process but they don't you know every leaflets different and it doesn't actually show that they get better. So we do try to limit people coming back. We limit things like educational levels so we don't get all a level people. You know, we try to get a range of the population, So people that that have got degrees, people that haven't, people that use information in their day job, people that are retired, people that use the medicine, people that are caring for people that take uh, medicine, maybe. So we try to be um, as inclusive as as possible for the type of work we're doing. very much depends on the the material, if it's a package leaflet that we're uh, reviewing. There's a set way of doing that, but we've worked on focus groups for cancer charities where we've recruited people living with cancer. We've helped other charities, you know, with their materials. So that will obviously apply to, to their members.
0: Okay. So what, what is life as a CEO like for you? Is it pressurized? I mean, you're quite a relaxed person. <laughs>
1: you're quite chill.
0: <laughs> <laughs> on the surface.
1: I think if you um, you asked me five years ago, did I want to be, or maybe ten, go back 10 years, um, would I see myself as a chief exec? I would have said no, because I love designing information. I love writing for patients. And as chief exec, I don't get to do that as often as I'd like to. It's a really fulfilling role as chief exec because you get to see the whole organisation. You get to guide your team through strategy and innovation, but also it's, it's a tough job. You know, one day you'll be looking at accounts, next day you'll be looking at, uh, you know, training, HR issue. You know, it's very varied, which is great, but it is very pressured. It never seems to be enough hours in the day. But um, over the last sort of five or six years, I've been chief exec of LUTO. I suppose you, you get into your rhythm, you know, you set your day up, uh, you know, things you've got to do. I have numerous to-do lists that, you know, you never seem to get to the end of, but you just know that, you know, you just reprioritize and that's part and parcel of, of the job. But having a great team around you, you know, that can share the workload and, and you know that you can trust somebody to deliver on something it really helps. And seeing people developing in the company, somebody maybe we've recruited from, University with some great skills, and then they flourish at Luto is really rewarding. So it's got uh, got some really nice parts in the role as well.
0: What sorts of job titles exist in Luto?
1: Another interesting question. So we've got research assistants that help us with uh, recruitment and sending materials out. We've also got project assistants who are sort of training to be a project manager, if you like. So they. They might conduct interviews with participants, they'll do some recruitment. they'll also get involved in some project management tasks as well. We've got project managers, and then we've got our senior team, but around us we've got uh, mentioned before our advisory board. so we've also got uh, nurses, doctors, uh, pharmacists, you know all sorts of professions on the team as well that all play their part in, in um, projects.
0: Okay. When we last spoke, I just, you just reminded me, you said, if I, if I could do one or if I had my way, I'd go into like a primary, I'd go into a general practice and I'd look at (laughs) their, you're so cool, Wayne. I would go (laughs) into, uh, (laughs) I'd go into their uh, practice and I'd look at their notice board and I'd get somebody and, you know, essentially you would teach them or, or ask them, you know, when was the last time you updated this and kind of just help them present their notice board in a way that people could actually read it because i when i think about mine things are just you know like put over the top cut over the top but over the top some are quite you know nice and spaced out but i think actually the information board in some respects could be more important because now people aren't going to the practice as much when they do go you really they're not going as mu- as much as they were so you really want to capture their attention like what tips could you give to what does a good notice board look like?
1: It's a really interesting point it is a passion of mine I'd love to work on a project I'm looking at a report actually as we're talking by the Royal College of uh, General Practitioners and it was from a workshop they did in 2014 and there's a there's a picture of a gentleman sat I presume in a waiting room and around him are a plethora of leaflets and posters and it just it just sort of demonstrates the the point really that's I would recommend you walk out into your waiting room and try to look at it from the point of view of a patient. So sit down on a seat and just look around, take a minute to look around what's on the notice board, what's by the reception desk. Are you accessible? Are you sort of blocking people from actually getting to the reception because you've got so many posters around it? And sometimes just think that you can get information overload. We all know about Google. You know, you get thousands of results when you search Google. It's the same in a GP practice, which certainly is in mine when I sit there. And um, there's so many posters that are trying to cover so much information. So when I've seen really good examples, they might have like a noticeable theme of the month. So when it's flu season, change all your materials to talk about flu and do that really well rather than trying to do too many things at once try to log what information you've got out on your notice board or what leaflets. A really simple way of doing that is just to turn it over and write the date you put it on the notice board and then you can quickly go around and once a month or so you realise, oh, that's been up for six months, better change that. I think try to consult an expert. That could be somebody within your practice or your local community, you know, a peer that's got some experience. There are a lot of information officers out there in the community and there's a great organization called the patient information forum that provides great resources for people especially people working as a sole person you know managing information out there in the field Um, and they've got lots of great guides for what to do but just walk that that area wherever it is if you're in a hospital waiting room or a gp practice and just try and see it through the eyes of a patient and think will they be able to understand this is it clear is the post, is the notice board in the right location? You know, I've heard one story, a, a gentleman wanted to get to a, a poster, but there was a lady sat in front of it and he couldn't yeah. read it. So he didn't want to sort of get too close. So, you know, actually, are you, is your information exists?
0: Mm. And maybe, it's a, maybe I'm backtracking a little bit. Do posters even work? I'm just trying to think when I go and sit in the doctors, like in the olden days, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'd just be looking at my
1: phone. It's true. Different people look at different things it's that thing isn't it why why GP practices got probably not magazines you know now because of COVID but sometimes you might be waiting for some time so it does depend on the setting.
0: Or they have those you know those screen, you know, like a TV screen.
1: Absolutely digital displays are the way forward and we, we've done a few of those for um, hospitals and various locations because you can change the information so quickly but again you need to think about what you're going to display on that that screen you know so make sure that you're creating something that isn't all comic sans and you know unreadable fonts etc loads of pictures and again you know there's lots of online if you search health events calendar or something like that you'll get all the health events through the year um, and try to diarize that you know keep it simple just do 12 events through the year one a month and say right this month we're going to focus on as I say the example might be flu get everybody involved in it as well. So it's a bit like when you're at school and the teacher did a notice board for autumn or something, you know. that's a great way of getting everybody involved and doing a bit of a team building exercise, actually, to create some content. And there's lots of great content out there. Again, the Patient Information Forum has has picked up the information standard, which is a a kite mark to assure the public that the information is is produced to a high level. So look for NHS England, posters, a lot of GP practices get that information anyway. But look for, you know, um, credible sources of information and that will help you rather than creating your own um, and share it. You know, one of the things that when I worked in in the NHS that shocked me was that everyone is trying to create a leaflet about the same topic. And if you collaborate, you could actually still make it uh, personalised to your environment, but you could look at the core content and collaborate and have one, one version and one person could lead on that rather than 10 people trying to write the same leaflet. I've even seen examples within a hospital where there's two or three different versions of the same okay. topic, you know.
0: And what would you say to people to say, so, you know, healthcare professionals are really, really busy. And you're right, they can go, you know, I think of flu now, we're talking about it. It's August at the moment, or, you know, start and think about and get ready. And you get your flu pack out and you might just, I don't know, you know, like you do what you've always done. What advice would you give them to, to a team or an organization So this actually is really important because in the grand scheme of all that uh, you know, like a nurse, a GP, a practice manager, a consultant have to do, making sure the poster is, you know, right and up to date, you know, is at the bottom. Why is it important that we take a little bit of time to get this right?
1: Now more than ever with COVID and not being able to go into you know, health settings, it's so important to make sure information is out there for the public and they can understand it. So in, in all countries, we've got a problem with health literacy. So just understanding and having somebody within the practice or business that has a an interest in information and can research some of that. As I say, there's lots of great sources you can turn to but actually making sure that information is on the agenda. So even at board level, or if it's a practice, you know, when they have their practice meetings, make sure there's a, an agenda item about patient information. It might not seem like the most important thing, but if you want somebody to take their medicine safely and effectively, or you want somebody to know when they can come and get their flu jab, the only way to do that is to inform them. And that might be for a leaflet or a video. There's various sources, but make sure you can find somebody that would volunteer, you know, they've got to enjoy doing it and everyone's busy in a practice, but there'll be that one person, it doesn't have to be the practice nurse, it could be the receptionist that says, okay, I'm gonna go and find out a little bit about this, maybe join something like the patient information forum, go online and do a little bit of research, contact me through my LinkedIn page, I'm happy to give some free advice, you know, because it's something that I really- (laughs) You you might regret that. (laughs) no no i'm always happy to talk to people but there's plenty of great resources out there to help you but you know identify someone who has an information hat in the in the organization so it's their responsibility to make sure it happens but it's a joint effort you know look at it as a team to make sure that um, you're doing the best you can for for your patients
0: okay if people want to find out more about luto where would they go
1: we're on our website and it's, uh, LUTO actually stands for Leeds University Testing Organization. So L-U-T-O, luto.co.uk. We're on Twitter, we're on LinkedIn, or you can find me, Wayne Middleton, on LinkedIn as well.
0: Okay. I'm going to ask you some quick fire questions to close out, okay? What is your favorite quote?
1: Ready, set, go. Ryan Serhant um, is a, an American real estate agent and it's just, you know, gets you motivated for the day.
0: Okay. Which piece would you play? Uh which piece are you when you play Monopoly?
1: Probably the little Scotty Dog.
0: Me too. <laughs> What's something about you that surprises people when they first hear it?
1: Oh might not surprise people because I like design but uh, I'm really into crafts and I um, do a lot of glass fusing so it's quite an unusual hobby to have but it's it's I really thoroughly recommend it you can really sort of get away from the stress of work and the day and just lose yourself in it
0: okay what uh, one accomplishment are you most proud of
1: I suppose my career today, I've had some really inspirational people in my life that have guided me. And I'm really proud of where I am at Luto. I feel really comfortable here and proud of what we've built. Okay.
0: What was your favourite subject at school?
1: Probably design technology, something like that.
0: (laughs) If you went to Costa, what drink would you order?
1: Probably something like a lactose-free hot chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. And then they <laughs> tell me the hot chocolate's got milk in it.
0: <laughs> um, what is one of your pet peeves? Hot chocolate that with milk powder in it. <laughs>
1: Look, um, drivers not indicating.
0: If you didn't see his, face, you can't obviously see his face. That clearly is a pet peeve. <laughs> Um, if you could go back in time, what one thing would you tell yourself?
1: Just to go with the flow. You know, life takes you on some amazing journeys and uh, just don't worry about things that, you know, you're exactly where you need to be at that point in, in your life, not to stress okay. about things.
0: And lastly, what's something you are self conscious about?
1: Uh, that's a good question. Probably things like public speaking, you know, how you, how you come across to people okay is this your first podcast it is yeah have a done
0: congratulations you have passed (laughs) (laughs) it will air thank you so much i really appreciate it and i'll speak to you soon
1: thanks tara
0: so much for joining us and if you like what you hear it would be great if you could give us a shout out on social media you can find me on twitter at thc primary care on instagram again at thc primary care or on linkedin just look for tara humphrey and if you really like it it would be great if you left us an itunes five star rating and review and i will see you in the next episode